taking time to work with your hands is the most human experience that you can have. And through that comes all the love you can give to somebody. My two sisters and I, we actually rode the horse to school. That's how far it was. They was keeping me alive all them years, and you know, because they said I should have died years ago. Take a bundle of scrap, clothes, rags, whatever you had, tie them up, soak them in kerosene, and throw them to one another. That was neat at night. This is Alabama Folk, where we go deep with artists and makers who carry on traditions passed down through the generations. Through their lives, we discover the many histories, cultures, communities, and landscapes that make us Alabama Folk. I'm your host, Emily Blavos. All right, all right. I was raised by an old school generation. My grandparents and great grandparents and all of them uh, still worked with their hands when I was growing up. And you know, coming from a generation that worked with your hands, they just expected you to work with your hands too. That's Jonathan Davis. He's Cherokee and Creek and carries on the indigenous tradition of finger weaving to create sashes worn during native ceremonies. This interest took root in Jonathan's earliest years. His father died when he was five, and with his mother working to support the family, Jonathan spent much of his childhood with his grandparents and great-grandparents. I was raised slightly differently than the majority of my peers because I was raised by so many people that were of that older generation. When it came to fixing fishing nets or watching them crochet or lap loom weave or hand quilt or any of that stuff, I was always the kid that was up under their feet. So I started in finger weaving, I guess you'd say, uh, just by my grandmother handing me scraps of yarn and thread and fishing line or whatever I could get my hands on. And I started making uh, small little woven pieces for my family. I used to make jewelry out of... uh, silvers for fishing lures like all that is knots and tying and my grandparents taught me knots early on so I could tie my own fishing lines and stuff so working with strings has always been natural I've always had string in my fingers I don't remember not being able to tie knots my aunt I would go raid her embroidery floss thing and she'd get mad at me because I'd pick all the nice colors and start (laughs) doing little finger woven bracelets for my cousins and stuff when I was seven or eight But later on, I guess I'd say I was about 14 or 15, uh, tribal elders started noticing that he's finger weaving, like, who taught you how to do that? And I was like, you know, I just did it. And so they saw that and they kind of fostered that in me. At age 15, Jonathan began an apprenticeship with Creek and Seminole finger weaver and native textile historian, Damien J. McGirt. He was so quiet and reserved. He wasn't one of those people that was out in the public because he was raised very traditional. English was not his first language. He was raised in a Creek-speaking home. So um, when it came to being out in public and talking and stuff, he really just didn't feel comfortable. So when it came to do leaving history or education type stuff, he kind of started calling me in to do more stuff with him and Gail Thrower and Robert Thrower and just a lot of people kept on commenting on it and just wanted me to follow through. Jonathan emphasizes the life-changing influence these elders, along with indigenous artisans, had on him. They saw what I was doing and they pushed me. I can't say enough about that. 
I don't know where I'd be today without them. After high school, Jonathan's interest in finger weaving led him to the anthropology department at the University of Alabama, where he discovered a serious gap in the dialogue and cultural education on indigenous textiles. Most academic writing on textiles, and this is across North and South America, indigenous textiles in general, the majority of it has been, been written by white scholars who are not textile artisans and are not weavers. They come at it from a very... Um, very academic, very processed white way of thinking. They've never gotten a first-hand account. You cannot approach this from a purely academic way. You can't just sit there and write about it and not have your hands on the things. I needed the indigenous perspective. So Jonathan enrolled at the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where he earned a degree in museum studies and where he continues to pursue his education in the field today. My primary focus in museum studies was textile conservation, and that was where my heart lied because I knew that I could talk about those things in a way that would be more approachable for Native people and talk about it in a way that hadn't been talked about it before. For example, Jonathan and his classmates often discussed repatriation and the dissonance between a museum's goal of preservation and the Native American perspective that certain artifacts should be returned to the earth. This idea that everything has to be preserved is not a really indigenous perspective. Like, say, totem poles from the Northwest, they feel like those shouldn't be shellacked, that they should uh, deteriorate naturally and return to the earth. Repatriation processes for each tribe is different because of those protocols, and that was a lot of the dialogue that we had in our degree program. By studying how to design museums and programs from an indigenous perspective, Jonathan was fulfilling the dreams of his mentors and elders. The elders really wanted me to push and to get that traditional viewpoint on things. And they pushed me to go into education so I could speak. Most of them did not have college educations or high school education. So they saw education as a very uh, strong tool uh, because they come from the generation of being talked over by academics. You want to have an ally in that field. Yeah. And so that's the reason why I was pushed, I think so more than anything. Throughout his education, Jonathan worked in antiquities. Primarily 18th and 19th century Native American antiquities. And so doing that, you get to see the best of the best mm -hmm. as far as textiles and traditional clothing and any type of Native art you can imagine. The best examples are in private collections. I was able to see and conserve some of the nicest pieces I've ever seen. And that just pushed me to, to show my people, this is where you come from. Never accept less. You know, this is your history. You need to be able to tell the outside world what this is. And that's one of Jonathan's goals with finger weaving, to provide cultural perspective and education that emphasizes the importance of protocols and intent, which often go unrecognized. Those elders saw that and said, you need to remember this and you need to pass it on. I see that as my role to make sure that my people especially have what they need going forward. This became painfully clear during the pandemic when Jonathan lost several older family members. Once we start losing the people that had the most influence on us is really when these things come down to us that we have a very heavy mantle. This is not about us. This is about the people that came before us and the people who came after us. In part, Jonathan's commitment to finger weaving is grounded in its ancient history, its status as the bedrock of all textiles and of indigenous and human identity. Textiles go back before pottery. 
They go back before even certain styles of basket weaving. We're talking about the earliest, earliest representations of who people were as people. So if I want to tell you about who I am and where I come from and who my people are, we're going to talk about weaving. So when we're talking about finger weaving, we're talking about warps held under tension. That's very basic, which means that you have to lean or sit on your tails of your finger weaving as you weave. Working from top to bottom is finger weaving. When you're working from both sides, that becomes spraying weaving. Those are the two oldest styles of weaving that we can document in the world from bogs, from deserts, from tombs. And I don't want people to take it for granted that they have this. It is so ancient and there are so many protocols and stories that go along with this that to turn your back on that is to kind of turn away from who you are. So the one thing Jonathan would tell us about finger weaving? I would say it was your birthright. And I wouldn't just say that to native people. Yes, it is your birthright, but I would say that to human culture as a whole. I would really love for everybody in the state, no matter what culture, no matter what religion, no matter what race, to realize that this is their history. I would love for anybody, no matter what their background, to know what this is, to honor what this is, because they should be proud that they come from a state that this came from. In Native tradition, finger-woven pieces are made for a particular person for a particular reason. When you make these things, you're just, just not making them to make them. You're making them to honor a person or a family. They are individual pieces, and you will never see a duplicate in traditional clothing. It just does not happen. And so when I see cookie-cutter things going on, it kind of upsets me because it, it takes that original honoring and that blessing that you're giving by making something for somebody. Finger-woven sashes can be made to honor someone who's naming a baby or getting married, but they're especially made to wear during the green corn ceremony, the most significant and sacred event of the creek year. Known as the Bosquita in the Muscogee language, the green corn ceremony involves fasting, praying, traditional dances, and other rites to honor Creator with thanksgiving and provide physical and spiritual renewal. Most people would like to have a sash for green corn because that is our most traditional form of clothing that we still have. You know, now we wear jeans and boots and normal ribbon skirts and everything, but when it comes down to it, this is our oldest form of clothing. Jonathan explains the process for finger weaving a sash for green corn, which starts with the proper mindset. When you're making that for somebody, you have to be spiritually aware because you are making that for somebody who is going to be fasting, somebody who is going to be praying. And so you have to be in that mindset. In the old way of thinking, when you make stuff for ceremonies, you have to fast. There's no getting around that because you are making something for those ceremonies. You're not allowed to eat. You're not allowed to sleep. It's what we call maker's protocols. Every time Jonathan is asked to weave a sash for green corn, he follows maker's protocols. I wake up at dawn and I start. No food, no water, nothing until noon. And I worked up until noon because the traditional thought process is that you're only supposed to work on that during the growing sun so that things are still growing, that things are still prospering. This sense of growth is the traditional reason sashes were woven for green corn ceremonies. Our green corn is our new year. It is our renewal ceremony. Back in the day, they would carry the sacred fire from that central fire and rekindle everything. Houses were rethatched. 
all the pottery was thrown out and shattered and new pottery was brought in. All the basketry, all the matting was taken out and burned or buried and everything was made new, complete and total renewal. Even when you talk about our agricultural processes, it all lines up. We're a slash and burn agricultural society. So the idea of burning it all out, starting you, that's what that idea of green corn and renewal is, is to bring us into that new year with everything new, everything fresh. This indigenous worldview runs throughout finger weaving. There is ideas and thought processes, and you can even say spiritual philosophies that go into weaving. That center point where you start a finger woven sash is called joins in the middle. And that is a spiritual philosophy. It is a balancing point of creation. So we're talking about red, white, peace, war, masculine, feminine. We're talking about everything we think of as cosmology in Southeastern history, that it all centers around that focal point, mm-hmm. that, you, that fulcrum, mm-hmm. that you are the balancing point for that. And so that center point, you always weave out from the center of finger weaving. The design radiates from the center. That center point is a tipping point spiritually. What that represents is complete and total balance. This cosmology extends to the way sashes are worn. Jonathan shows me an example, a beautiful and intricate sash woven in peach, green, and white with a diamond design at the center and tiny beads woven in. I made this one for Sahoy Thrower. Sahoy is the daughter of Robert Thrower and granddaughter of Gail Thrower, both instrumental forces in documenting and honoring Creek culture in Alabama. She commissioned me to make it. I made it to her specifications, but I did it in a way to honor her family for everything they've done for me. You know, I kind of threw the kitchen sink. (laughs) This is a double-sided sash. This is actually an older style of belt because these are actually meant to be worn under clothing to hold up the wrap skirt. The breeches and the aprons and and the leggings and everything, everything's tied into that. The fringe hangs down on both sides. And you remember what we were talking about, standing in the middle or standing in balance, balancing the worlds. You are standing in the center part, and that's what that balance by the fringe hanging on both sides represents. You're standing in balance with the creation. The sash has become outerwear, and today it's the piece of clothing most Southeastern Native people seek out for the green corn ceremony. I think people feel whole when they have a belt on. Even if they're wearing just an ankle loom sash, they've got, they feel like they have to have that. Call it blood memory, but you know, it harkens back to that saying that that's us. During green corn, that's when you're supposed to bring yourself back. After the break, we'll learn how finger weavers keep a certain person in mind as they weave. And we'll dig into the weaving process itself, how it's changed and how it hasn't, and what may lie ahead. While finger weaving, in addition to following protocols around fasting and timing, weavers also keep in mind the specific person who will wear the sash. It's that idea of being 
prayerful for that person. You're wishing them good things. You're wishing th- good things for their family. Most people don't, they're, they're so bogged down with this modern world that they don't realize that taking time to work with your hands is the most human experience that you can have. And through that comes all the love you can give to somebody. This mindset permeates the green corn ceremony itself, held on private and sacred ground. When we sit out there at the grounds, we're not praying for our individual self. We're praying for us, our, I mean, our families, our communities. It is the maker's place to facilitate that. We know that they're going to be in that mindset, so we give them all our spiritual energy that we can because we know that they're going to be wearing this and that eventually this is going to be passed on to their kids, their grandkids, and that their kids and their grandkids are going to wear that out to those ceremonies. And to me, that is the most special thing. To me, that that's what makes it worth it. When I see my brothers out there, when I see Sohoi dressed up, when I see all these people wearing things that I made, it's not, it's not so much I made that, it's that they get to wear that, that, you know, it's still out there. And to be clear... Finger-woven pieces are intended to be worn. It's not meant to be a stationary art piece on a wall. That's the reason why I don't consider what I do as art. I don't consider myself an artist because everything I make is meant to be used. It is not meant to be in a gallery. And that's a disconnect between what I consider traditional Native American art versus what the art world sees as traditional Native American art. I see traditional Native American art as something that is going to be used ceremonially for its original intended purpose. Plus, Jonathan points out, the sash is not an inanimate object. During its creation, it absorbs life and spiritual energy. In the traditional thought process, you're breathing life into that work. Mm-hmm. It's no longer an object. Mm-hmm. It has life. Every one of those pieces has a vibe. And it's because whoever made that spent a really long time and that was made for a certain person. So before we dig deeper into the finger weaving process, we need to set the record straight on that stereotypical image of Southeastern native dress, which is... Total fairy tale. I don't want people to get the false idea that we were running around in buckskins and fabric that looked like burlap because it's just false. Like the earliest clothing that people had was woven, not hide. And I want to stress that point. We were a very textile heavy culture. Since the pre-agriculture era, indigenous peoples wove using a variety of native materials. All kinds of plant matters. So dogbane, mulberry, even cotton, buffalo wool, and natural plant fibers, and natural dyes, and river pearls, and copper. And I primarily work with two-ply wool. Historically, they would have used uh, two or three-ply, sometimes four-ply hand-spun wool. Today, Jonathan mostly uses hand-spun wool from Peru due to the difficulty of sourcing native materials in Alabama. I have used dogbane, but only in very limited, small little samples and stuff because it's just so prohibitive to go and gather the natural materials. Environmentally, it's really hard for us to source the materials anymore. We don't have access to large areas of dogbane, mulberry. This scarcity is caused by environmental impacts. We're talking about runoff. We're talking about uh, not having slash and burn agriculture anymore. A lot of it now, to be honest, is uh, spraying by DOT and environmental runoff. To begin the process of traditional finger weaving, you take a piece of river cane or a hardwood dowel about two feet long, wrap it to set up the warps, then tie it to a tree to keep the strands tight. Then you get on the ground. On your knees and to put pressure with your knees or to lean or rest up on the ends on the ground. But uh, now people sit in chairs and like they'll 
tuck it up under their leg or they'll use uh, the back of a chair or whatever. According to Jonathan, the biggest mistake people make... They do not hold their warps under tension. Keeping the tension is critical to the design. It makes it tight. It makes it pop. And you're not sitting there and constantly having to tweak and pull and tighten your every single strand. Finger weaving is practiced among different indigenous groups, but there are specific patterns according to their various traditions. In the southeast, we're famous for our southeastern diamond pattern. That is uh, one of our oldest styles, and it's actually one of the most complicated finger weaving styles. As far as I know, there's probably only three people that I've seen try to do it. What I was told that it represents is the eye of the creator, or Ophunga's eye. That, that creative force of the universe, and you'll see that pop up over and over again in prehistoric art. The colors are sometimes the favorites of the person who will wear the sash, or they can be traditional native color combinations. Green and pink, blue and red, red and black, teal and black. Sometimes they represent clans. Sometimes they represent uh, the idea of that balance. So if you're using red and black or red and white, it's talking about that duality. But like say you're using lightning patterns, so you use yellow or something for yeah. the lightning bolt. I ask how you get the beads into the sash. Individually strung. This speaks to the time and commitment required to finger weave traditionally. Jonathan directs us back to the sash he made for Sahoy. It is made in an 18th century style using all the correct materials for the time period. It took me a year to make. An acrylic sash may only take me a couple weeks. If I had to spin, card, weave, dye, do it from start to finish, to do a whole project, you're looking at two and three years. Today, there are few finger weavers in the country who learned from a traditional teacher, as Jonathan did, and who continue to weave using traditional methods. Even in Oklahoma, when we got to the grounds, you're lucky if you see five finger woven sashes because there's so few finger weavers still around, even less that know protocols. <laughs> we are such a small community. He says you can count the number on two hands or less of old school finger weavers. We're dying breed. With so few finger weavers. There is no competition. We build each other up because we realize that we're it. And so we support each other in any way, shape, or form we can. This camaraderie is critical for keeping finger weaving alive. We don't have that much time to save this. We can't rely on institutions to help us. We have to do it ourselves. And that's what it's coming down to now is we're having to teach individuals on it case by case. To be sure, the mutual support and solidarity among finger weavers reflects the urgency of the moment. But it also reveals a central tenet of the indigenous worldview, that everyone is given a gift. We say that in traditional culture all the time. It doesn't mean that you have to be the best weaver or that you have to be the best potter or that you have to be the best creek singer, best leader at the square ground or the best shaker. It's about creator gave you a gift. It's about finding out what he gave you and going on with it and doing something about it because that was given to you. That wasn't given to your sister. That wasn't given to, you know, your neighbor down the road. That was given to you. It's the idea of everything you have is inside of you. You just have to wake up to it. Robert Thrower always said that, and he always reminded me of that when I got stressed. Don't get stressed. It's there. Just go for it because you will get the support you need, and people will see that in you. If it's, if it's led like it's supposed to be led and you're doing what you're supposed to do, you'll find the assistance. Somebody will help you out. Somebody will see it. I asked Jonathan how he feels when he looks toward the future. I, I try to be hopeful. Mm -hmm. You know, I hope that I live long enough that people are able to ask me enough questions, that I'm able to give everything that I have 
at least be able to teach a few people. I don't have a savior complex. I don't think I'm going to be able to save it all by myself. But I do know that there are enough people with interest. Young people, especially, Jonathan says. I think the younger generation has a better understanding than even the older generation does because we're talking more about it now. They weren't able to talk about it a generation or two ago. And so the fact that young people are willing to stand up and say, no, this is who I am, that's the reason why I'm hopeful. That's the most hopeful thing I can see. Alabama Folk is produced by the Alabama Folklife Association with editing and mixing by Matt Whitson. This week, a huge thanks to Jonathan Davis for sharing his story with us and to Sahoy Thrower for introducing us, Brandy Chun for hosting our conversation, and Cheryl Thrower for taking photographs. Our music break featured a traditional Porch Creek Stomp Dance demonstration, recorded in 2017 and provided by the Office of Archives and Records Management of the Porch Band of Creek Indians. Special thanks to Deidre Dees, Chad Parker, and Deb Boykin. Our theme music is Gotta Move, arranged by Albert Macon of Society Hill, Alabama, and sung by Albert Macon and Robert Thomas. For over 40 years, the two men played their style of boogie and blues together in their native Macon County and at fish fries, parties, and festivals throughout central Alabama. Their music also received national and international attention. Gotta Move was recorded by Phil Foster at the Alabama Folklife Festival in Montgomery in 1992 and is included on Traditional Musics of Alabama, Volume 1, available at alabamafolklife.org. This series is made possible with support from the Alabama Humanities Alliance, Alabama State Council on the Arts, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Learn more at alabamafolklife.org.